Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 580 of them now. Um, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out some of the previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. And there's also a page with our address and stuff. If you don't want to use PayPal, you can support it in other ways. My guest today is Sebene Selassie. Sebene is a teacher, author, and speaker who explores the themes of belonging and identity through meditation, creativity, and spirituality. Born in Ethiopia and raised in Washington, D.C., she began studying Buddhism 30 years ago as an undergraduate at McGill University, where she majored in comparative religious studies. She has an M.A. from the New School, where she focused on race and cultural studies. For over 20 years, she worked with children, youth, and families nationally and internationally for small and large non not-for-profits. She mentioned to me that she spent a year in Africa working in a refugee camp. Now she teaches classes, workshops, and retreats regularly and is one of the most popular teachers on the 10% Happier app. That's Dan Harris's app. Dan has been on BatGap. Sebene is a three-time cancer survivor of stage three and four breast cancer. Her first book, You Belong, A Call for Connection, is published by Harper One. And I should mention that some of her primary teachers were... Um, Thanissara and Kitasaro, a couple who teach together, and they were on Batcap also some years ago. So, welcome, Sebede. It's good to, good to be doing this, finally. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. I think I might have first discovered you on Dan's podcast or something. Or I, I forget. I don't listen to it regularly, but you kind of popped up, and I thought, wow, she looks interesting. Let's check her out. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a little bit of the biographical history, which I just sketched out, but uh, there are some interesting details to it. Your book is very honest and vulnerable. You bravely discuss things that some people might feel a little shy about discussing, but you just go into it. And I, I think that's good because everybody goes through things. We all do. We all have. And I think it helps people gain greater confidence in their own possibilities if they realize that, well... He or she, you know, went through this, that, and the other thing and, um, you know, really screwed up here and there or whatever. And yet, look at them now. They're doing pretty well. And maybe that's a possibility for me, too. Yeah, you know, I use belonging in the book and generally as a metaphor for ways that we feel at home, connected, the ways that we're awakening, feel joy, freedom. And so not belonging are all the ways that we feel like we are not enough, that we're screwing up, that we're not measuring up, whether that's from our own personal experience or from what society might be telling us about us, depending on our identities, our past, our culture, our history. And I also look a lot and work a lot with our ancestral or cultural conditioning. So the things that we come into this life with epigenetically or genetically. I remember hearing you say in some interview that you briefly considered writing a book about your cancer experience, but you really didn't feel like focusing a whole book on that. So you discussed it some of the book, but you chose to write about belonging. Why was that your choice? 
One, you know, I really wanted to choose a theme that was positive and encouraging, as you were describing, something that many people could relate to. And cancer was not a pleasant experience, let's say that. I learned a lot from it. I wouldn't change my experience, but I kind of didn't want to focus on something that was particularly unique, even though there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who could relate. But I also didn't want to focus on something that was about difficulty only. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I've said it myself, that I wouldn't change my experience. I mean, obviously, it's kind of a moot point because we can't change our past experience. (laughs) Uh, But I guess it implies that, you know, as difficult as it was, I learned something from it. And it also kind of implies, to my mind, that there is a divine orchestration of the universe and things just don't happen arbitrarily. They happen for a reason, not necessarily a reason that our intellects can grasp, but somehow or other, life is for learning, as Joni Mitchell sang. And the universe isn't just cruel. It has an evolutionary trajectory. Anything that happens in the big picture, if you can zoom out far enough, is conducive to our spiritual evolution. Do you agree with that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've been writing recently in my my newsletter and blog about cultivating sacred trust which is the way that I've been kind of approaching it. And so it's trusting things that we can't understand, all the myriad causes and conditions that led to this moment that are unchangeable. There's a a way that when we don't trust that, we're being in contention with reality in some way, that we're wishing for a better past, as some people sometimes say. And the sacred part of it is the mystery that you're describing, that there's some kind of evolutionary, mysterious quality to why we're in this moment that we're in right now and really trusting that. And then the response that can come from that can, of course, invite change or progress or even challenge. Yeah. Irene was just uh, writing an email to somebody who had written in to say that he was just very disturbed by everything that's going on in Washington, D.C. and and what, you know, it was really bringing him down. And she was saying some things to try to encourage him. And I somehow I remembered a song that I'd heard decades ago called, I think it was a jazz song called The, the Creator Has a Master Plan. I looked it up. It was by Pharaoh Sanders. Oh, yeah. I love that song. Yeah. I think that's what we're talking about. As a Buddhist, I don't know if you dwell too much on there being a creator, because Buddhists tend not to, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, although that author byline or subtitle lists me as a Buddhist, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek in in some ways, and honoring in others, just honoring how much I've learned from that lineage, but I don't necessarily identify as a Buddhist in the sense that, you know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, but gained a lot, a lot from those teachings, and I wholly kind of surrender to the mystery of it all, that um, I can't say what exists or how it exists in terms of how this all began, but there is definitely an order or at least an unfolding to this that is beyond our logical comprehension. Yeah. I always say it's like God is hiding in plain sight. If you look at anything closely enough, you see this marvelous orderliness and creativity at, at play. Yeah, exactly. We'll play around with the notion of belonging, since that was what your book was about. But let's start by, what is the deepest way that you could define the word belonging and the concept it represents? 
You know, I use these two sentences throughout the book, and they, to me, really speak to the paradox of belonging. To me, that is the deepest sense of belonging that I've come to, is accepting that paradox. And so in the book, I say that we are not separate and we are not the same. To me, that balancing of what seemingly is contradictory has been where I've found belonging. And that means both fully embracing that interconnectedness, which is undeniable, you know, whether we look at it scientifically or whether we look at it spiritually, our own experience in nature, as you said, looking closely at kind of the wonders or marvels of the, the world around us, to fully understand and embrace that interconnection, that non-separation, and, and it's not a but, it is an and, to acknowledge that we incarnate or we come into this world differentiated and that there is experiences and realities and histories and trajectories related to that difference. And that's not something to be ignored or bypassed, but actually when we can reckon with these two truths, and in the Mahayana, especially Buddhist tradition, they're called the paradox of the two truths because they, they do seem paradoxical. You know, for me, that's been kind of the richest exploration of belonging. Yeah, I've used the word paradox so many times in these interviews that somebody once sent me a T-shirt with that word on it. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, Hinduism has a similar idea. They have a term called Vyavaharika Satyam, which means transactional reality. And they use examples like clay pots, which are nothing but clay. So there really is only clay, but yet there are pots. You know, and you can't deny the pots. It would be absurd to do so. Yeah. And, you know, when we get to the complexity of our lives today with extreme polarization, the multitude of identities, you know, the fact that we are aware of so much more in terms of not just within our own communities, but throughout the world, that that complexity becomes even more important to navigate for all of our well-being. One thing that comes to mind with your paradox point is that There's no conflict between the sort of two levels of reality we're talking about, absolute and relative, if you want to call it that. And in fact, there can be a very complementary or mutually enriching relationship between them. I don't know if the absolute can be enriched, but the relative or the diversity of creation can certainly be enriched by taking recourse or anchoring ourselves or having access to the the absolute level. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think of it in terms of kind of the actual people that I encounter in my work and in my life. And yes, I think that people who kind of immerse themselves in the relative reality, I see this true with a lot of activists and spiritual activists and people who are really trying to address the injustices and the harms and the inequities of our world, that there can be a deep refuge and rest and solace in the absolute and not just as a means to an end, you know, not to rest to go do more, but as a real deep understanding. And I think that conversely, there can be a real refuge in, let's say, the relative for folks who tend to kind of shoot off to the absolute, you know, bypass into oneness and not want to reckon with the realities. And we see that in the U.S. anyways today, people who've not wanted to kind of reckon with the realities of history and the chickens coming home to roost, as it said. Yeah. Who was it? Stephen Wright had a joke. He said uh, he broke up with my girlfriend because I wasn't really into meditation and she really wasn't into being alive. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, and that living is, you know, it's glorious and it's wonderful. And it, it also has its challenges and it has its realities and heartbreaks and being willing to open to those and actually work with them together in community, I think is, is one of the riches of the relative. Yeah, maybe a main point we're making here is you can't take refuge in the absolute to the exclusion of the relative. If you do, that's called spiritual bypassing, and we can talk more about that. And if your life is all about the relative without access or recourse to the absolute, then it doesn't have a foundation and all kinds of problems result, which is the experience of most people. Yes, both of them will be in contention with the reality of the two truths being true. I have some notes here, and as we go along, you know, if any thought pops into your head and I'm not asking a question about it, just go ahead and start talking about it, and we'll get into it. So I'm going to kind of sketch through some notes I took while reading your book. And the first chapter is entitled, The Delusion of Separation, We Were Never Separate. Yeah, so, you know, I think we've been talking about it a bit already, that there's a delusion of separation kind of in either pole of these two truths. And, um, you know, it's really at the heart of why we don't feel we belong. It's at the heart of all the divisions we see politically and socially. It's um, it's a hard truth to contend with, that truth of non-separation, when we're kind of mired in our own gunk. We're feeling that sense of separation, again, because of, you know, things from our past, things from our ancestry, things in our world around us. So I use a lot my own example of you know, immigrating, growing up in D.C. in the early 70s, so long before the kind of wave of Ethiopians turned it into little Addis Ababa. And so being very different growing up in white neighborhoods and not being as wealthy as the folks around us and eating different foods and speaking a different language and, and just generally encountering some really nasty racism in the neighborhood and in the, the larger community. And so, you know, that sense of feeling separate, feeling like you don't belong can come through so many channels kind of in our, in our lives. So unlearning that delusion is I think where the path starts and why I started with, with that. And I, I use both scientific examples the truth of our deep, deep interconnection that, you know, modern and uh, science is continuing to uncover the truths of that more and more and the mystery of that and the paradox of it. Um, but I also point to ancient ways of knowing, which for many, many years were dismissed by modernist thinking or uh, dualistic thinking. Sometimes I fantasize, I think, wow, I, I wish I could have had my current state of consciousness or whatever, when I was in high school. It would have been such a, a better experience back then. And if I have it to do over again, I hope I don't have to go through all that confusion. You know, I think, and this is kind of the not being in contention with reality and seeing the perfection of things as they are. I often point to this when I talk about the word mindfulness and how it's a misnomer and how, you know, it's really an embodied awareness. And I did not have that. I was really, really in my head and a lot in my heart, like very emotional as a young person, but I really wasn't connected to my body. And as I've gotten reconnected to my body, I feel like I'm a better teacher of how to have embodied presence because I had to map my way back to that. And so I can kind of lead people. Whereas some people I know who are just like naturally embodied, you know, have that innate sense. It's kind of hard for them to explain 
to other people how to do it because it comes so innately for them. And I think the same is true with belonging. This is why my author title also includes weirdo. There's like a great power in being a weirdo, you know, like <laughs> that if we've experienced that alienation, if we've experienced that sense of lostness, we can actually help lead others in a much more authentic ways. Let your freak flag fly, as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young sang. Exactly. <laughs> People um, will find your flag. Yeah. You know, when I think about how confused I was as a kid, and I see so much craziness in society, you know, it's like that Kurt Vonnegut story, Welcome to the Monkey House or something, or I'm thinking of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Like, the whole world is sort of a cuckoo's nest. It's, it's like, we're all crazy uh, to one degree or another. And the truly sane ones are few and far between. And even they are kind of crazy. Let's see who's using those words for whom, you know, and who, who gets labeled with those. But there's definitely some truth in who's outside. I use this metaphor of margin and center in the book to describe, you know, we often talk about marginalized people as if everyone wants to be in the center. And my argument is that actually from the margins, you have much greater perspective that you have a bigger understanding. If the center is everyone kind of looking in at fool's gold, they don't really know what's going on in the rest of society and culture. And so marginalized people, like people of color, poorer people, LGBTQI people, those who find themselves on the margins for whatever reasons often have to travel into the center because that's where the resources are, that's where power is, that's where we get educated. But those of us who kind of go in and out we have this perspective on the world that is much wider, much more holistic. And so, yeah, again, like who decides the labels of what's in, what's out, what's sane, what's crazy, what's margin, what's center. In the world, but not of it. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. In a way, I mean it literally. Obviously, it's a relative term, craziness or sanity or whatever. But, you know, here we are, we're, we come into this life without a clue of what's going on, and usually born into a dysfunctional family. We grow up, and it's kind of scary, and, you know, we just bumble along. And some people go their whole lives without any serious introspection or deep exploration or anything like that. Most people do, as a matter of fact. And if that's the way one is functioning, then inevitably the society, if the vast majority of people are functioning that way, the society is just going to be full of problems and difficulties and, you know, mistreatment of people and, you know, all kinds of cruelties and horrors. Yeah, and, I, you know, most people aren't conditioned or, or cultured to take time to look at that. And if we do take contemplative time, that starts to reveal itself because we're not caught up in our busyness or in our habituated activities. And I would say that it's really exciting for that reason that so many more people are coming to meditation and contemplative practices. And, you know, I know since our, uh, a little bit from our chat before we started that you've been in this world for a long time. And so it's, it's not new to you, but the kind of mainstream acceptance of this is really revolutionary. And in fact, I think is pointing to a reckoning with that, at least with the fatigue of that way of living. Yeah, that point really excites me because I've always felt that 
based upon what I just said, that, you know, the, the forest is a collection of trees, the society is a collection of individuals, and, you know, if the forest is gray and withering, it's because the trees are unhealthy, and if the society is, is crazy and full of problems, it's because most of the individuals making it up are not really accessing their full potential. So I've always been excited about the sociological implications of spiritual development and how if it became profound and widespread enough, it could really transform the world. And in fact, unless that does happen, the world will keep stumbling along with more and more severe problems. So the fact that we face potentially humanity-ending problems now in, in the world, I think is, is exciting that that crisis seems to be getting met by an upsurge or an epidemic of interest in, in spirituality and, you know, many, many people just really taking it to heart. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited, especially by the younger generation that is, you know, really so much more comfortable than, let's say, I was coding my language around it for many years and, you know, not really sharing my practices very much. Not that, that I would ever proselytize to people, but, you know, just not even really talking about it very much with even close friends and this surge in these young people just being completely open and honest about their practice, their spiritual practice, but also their healing and their admission of, you know, trauma and of reckoning with both the internal and the relative as well as the kind of larger spiritual or interconnected truths. That's great. Are you seeing that firsthand? Do you work much with young people? Yeah. And you know, when I say young, I younger than me. So <laughs> that's, that's a pretty wide range. I'm not necessarily talking about teenagers, although I worked with teens a lot in my life. But yeah, I do see a lot of people on retreats and in workshops and classes who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s. That's exciting. If the young people are taking to things en masse, then that's a harbinger of, of what's to come, because what they're doing, if they're doing it in larger numbers, will become more mainstream in the coming decades. Yes, definitely. There are a lot of witches on Instagram. Witches? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm too There's old a... to understand what that reference is. <laughs> There's a huge surge in magic and mysticism, astrology, and spiritual, uh, you know, an embrace of, kind ah. of ancient wisdom traditions and mystical practices that is very different than the surge in mindfulness meditation, which had to be delivered in sort of this very conservative, palatable to the uh -huh. mainstream way. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, as you know, I was a student of Maharishi's for many years, and um, he had this whole discussion about how what he called natural law tapered off and diminished over long periods of time until it kind of hit a nadir. And then he felt that there would be a, a resurgence to its full expression in one generation in a, in a relatively short amount of time. He spent a lot of time talking about ancient cultures and the importance of their revivication, you know, their emergence again, and that they had so much to offer and that, you know, we had totally destroyed them and much to our own detriment. Yeah, that sounds very prophetic and, and powerful. Okay, so speaking of ancient cultures, one of the bullet points that we haven't discussed yet moving along, one of the points in your book is, Rocks are people, ancient and modern metaphors. Yeah, you know, I bring that in. I was on a trip in South Africa, actually to go on retreat, a month-long retreat with Tanisara and Kitisaro at their hermitage, Dharmagiri. 
And I was traveling with a group of friends from New York and we were Freedom Park, which is a kind of a living museum. And the guide was giving us a quick summary of South African history and spirituality. And he was talking about Ubuntu, which is a term from the Bantu language that is often translated as I am because we are, I am because you are. It's often referred to just in terms of humanistic connection. You know, it's a humanist philosophy. But when he was describing it, he mentioned that truth and then he kind of paused. And maybe I think because he kind of could see that we probably wouldn't understand the depth of what that meant. He said, you know, everything is people. Mountains are people and sky is people and rivers are people and rocks are people. So to me, that declaration points to the ancient understanding of that scientific truth that there is kind of that fundamental non-separation, interconnection at the heart of being that the ancients understood. And a lot of our scientific rediscovery of that is healing from the denial of that, that so much of early scientific materialism touted, you know, this separation, this lack of connection with the truth. And I go on, or maybe before that, I talk about this word epistemicide, Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, which is, um, you know, a word that you can understand the root epistemology, epista from like epistemology or side, like genocide. And it refers to the killing of ways of knowing. And it's often used in post-colonial theory to describe not just the kind of material or human harm that came from colonialism and, and the genocide that it wrought, as well as the Atlantic slave trade, but also the cultural and um, uh, wisdom that was lost, the, the cultural knowledge that was killed off. And, and not just because peoples were killed, but because there was an active destruction of other ways of knowing. There was a dismissal. Uh, indigenous peoples were not allowed to practice their spiritual practices or speak their languages in settler colonial states around the world. And so epistemicide kind of points to that historical legacy of damage that we're all reckoning with now and how we come back from that in a way that's honoring this truth that this scientific world is is kind of rediscovering now is something that ancient wisdom has always known. Yeah, it seems to me it was largely a, well, most of the colonizers were Christian and very often fundamentalistly so. And if you read about the accounts of how indigenous people were treated, it's it's incredibly horrific. It's comparable with anything the Nazis did in, in Germany. But there was this conceit, you know, this arrogance, like, we've got the truth, and these people are just primitive morons, and, oh, aren't they silly, you know, thinking that rocks are alive, or that trees have some kind of consciousness, or, you know, some such things, whatever they pondered, it, they just thought these people were all over the world, you know, all the different cultures that were colonized that were just primitive, backward, and given the evangelical sentiment that they needed saving or, or converting to our wise way of thinking. And, you know, with this conversation, because I'm writing from a particular position and from particular communities, I'm also pointing to and challenging my own communities, including mindfulness communities that tend to 
privilege scientific research about mindfulness and meditation and quote-unquote provable ways for us to swallow these medicines and dismissing a lot of the mystical aspects and a lot of the more mysterious elements of the practice and of the traditions that they come from and the type of arrogance that that is. It's a more subtle arrogance because it, it doesn't carry kind of the, the violence, let's say, that we're, you were describing just now, but there is still a conceit and an arrogance in it um, that uh, really lacks to me curiosity about, you know, what exactly were, were they speaking to, you know, in these ancient texts or these, these practices. Yeah, and getting back to our paradox point, there's no harm in hooking meditators up to EEGs and, you know, doing all kinds of research. That does not in any way diminish the mystical dimensions that they may experience through their practice or the reality of those dimensions. I mean, the Dalai Lama is a good example of somebody who appreciates both and encourages, exactly. encourages the scientists but totally appreciates the mystics of his and other traditions. Yep, exactly. I totally agree. And actually, I think it's important that both be um, appreciated because it would definitely be a tragedy to dumb down spiritual traditions and say, oh, it's just some kind of changes in brain chemistry or something. And yet, on the other hand, we live in a scientific age and science is the predominant paradigm. So if spiritual practices can be verified and understood more scientifically and neurophysiologically and all, it'll help to introduce spirituality more widely into our into our world. Yes, and for me, coming back to the start of the conversation and cultivating sacred trust, it's really understanding that everything is sacred. It's that trust in this present moment to understand that our scientific evolution or technology is not the enemy in some way and that we have to return to some pristine past. I went through, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, a period where I was only doing natural therapies when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer. And my kind of radical revolutionary take was not to turn to alternative medicine, it was to turn to allopathic medicine and sort of accept the chemo and the radiation, which I did massive amounts of. Mm. And to do that wisely and working with doctors that I really trusted who would also help me with complementary care and it was really recognizing kind of the sacrament of a pill or of an infusion. So we can kind of, again, lean to one side or another in our choosing of something and in that rejection, not recognize that we're, we're just in the same battle or struggle with life. Yeah. And, you know, the last couple of points we've discussed can be glommed together and, and made really relevant to what's going on right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. There is a very good chance the pandemic will be worsened and prolonged by people who, in my opinion, have an unscientific attitude toward what's actually going on. It's nuanced because obviously modern medicine has done harm in various ways, but it's also done so much good. I mean, so many huge epidemics like smallpox and polio have been wiped out through vaccines. So I'm kind of tuned into this issue and, and think about it a lot. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I'm not a a medical professional at all, so I can't advise others and on what's right for them. And really, it is about your own choices in terms of you know, what you feel is logical, right, healthy for you. And for me, 
just someone who practices watching my mind and kind of really understanding where my thoughts, my opinions, my views come from, just noticing our tendency to kind of outright reject things because we have a kind of a, a solidified opinion about something and actually haven't done that much research or understanding or made decisions not from fear or from upset or from habituated ideas about whatever it is, doctors or medicine or technology. And so it's interesting to see people kind of take sides as if there's there's a side in this situation. This is maybe the first time in history where we are all experiencing the same situation at once globally, you know, whether I talk to my cousins in, in Ethiopia or, you know, we witness the reality across Europe and, and Asia, we're all in this, you know, and so there's no side to take. There's really exploration, conversation, understanding and choices that are good for all of us. Yeah. And I think there's something which everyone could use more of, but which is critical on the spiritual path, which is discernment or discrimination. People are susceptible to being convinced by information they take in. And, you know, these days people are very polarized in this country and perhaps around the world. It's actually very characteristic of the spiritual community, too. There's this term conspirituality, which is popular these days, where the spiritual community has been so infiltrated by a lot of conspiracy theory thinking. And people have undergone really strange shifts in their orientation, you know, politically and with regard to the pandemic and everything else, which is kind of tearing the, the spiritual community apart as well as it tears families apart outside this community. Yeah, I've been witnessing that from afar. I'm, I'm I don't know, maybe fortunate, maybe uh, I would understand more that I don't have kind of that in my, my, my circles um, so much, but I know that it's been really challenging for folks who have to deal with parents who are COVID deniers or refuse to wear masks, and there's a lot of fear for ourselves and for others. So anyway, the point to end this little bit on is just that there are books and talks and all kinds of emphasis in various spiritual um, traditions about the importance of developing discernment or discrimination as we go along. And we don't get off the hook at any point, really. I think it's something that will be with us as long as we're alive. It's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to get confused. It's easy to to go off into little um, cul-de-sacs and get stuck. As you say that, it just points to me, and this is true in all spiritual teachings, the importance of community in Buddhism. It's it's the, the three refuges of the teachings, the awakening, the Buddha, the, the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, the community. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how we can really function in life without that spiritual friendship, that strong community, because discernment requires that. It requires conversation and collaboration and also conflict and cooperation. And yeah, the the kind of few stories I've heard of people descending down a rabbit hole of conspiracy and this swirl of confusing views and opinions. It's often people who are quite isolated or, you know, find community in that confusion. Yeah, that's which says two different things. On the one hand, they may be isolated. On the other hand, they might have found birds of a feather that they've gone down the rabbit hole with. But either way, I don't think it's conducive to um, our spiritual 
path or progress. And, um, I know people who've, you know, been meditating for decades who've, who've fallen into this. And obviously I have an, an opinion about it because I'm using words like fallen, but, um, I think it's a shame and I hope they come out of it. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that if folks who tend to fall into this are more isolated, do they have strong community? They may, but you know, people just form their own communities. The communities kind of morph or they reshuffle. For instance, there's a monastic program in the TM movement called Purusha, and I have friends who are on that. And, you know, there's quite a few hundred guys, both in India and in in a facility in West Virginia. And I have a good friend in the West Virginia facility who says that they're like lunch tables, at least pre-COVID where they, people actually ate together, where there's a right-wing political one, there's a conspiracy theory table, you know, and actually some people who've gotten into believing in flat earth theories. And then there are people who don't want any of that crap and they just want to focus on their spiritual focus. Even in a community, you can fragment and you can find your little niche and, you know, the whole niche can go, go off on a tangent. That's really interesting. Uh, again, you know, I haven't, the, the communities I'm a part of haven't been touched so much by this. I'm kind of curious if that will emerge or we've just been kind of protected by something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Irene's saying, talk about something different because this comes up every week. Yeah, <laughs> that's the soup we're in, you know, and it's really, um, it's so hard because it's just months and months of coming up against the challenges of this year, but it is what we're in. For me, not so much around conspirituality or these issues, but just the fatigue. I was looking out the window this morning and, you know, just really missing my neighborhood. It's right there, but the life of the neighborhood is not the same, you know, and the, the connections with neighbors and friends has just shifted so much. And so that you know, I was feeling sort of a little weepy this morning, some heartache. I got up around 6.30, so I've been up for a while. And, you know, it's just like, okay, I can allow that. I don't have to feel like it has to go away just because I have a call now or <laughs> I should be over it. But just continually allowing what's happening. I mean, we're all going through that. Yeah. And in a way, it's like an imposed retreat. You and I have been on a lot of retreats voluntarily. And, uh, you know, we knew what we were getting into, sort of. But right now, the whole society, to a great extent, has had an, a retreat imposed upon them. And you know how retreats can get difficult. And you can get obsessive. You fall in love with this person or you, you hatch some marvelous business scheme that probably would totally flop or you just kind of get all caught up in, in certain ways of thinking. So perhaps the extreme way that people have been, perhaps people have been polarized even more by virtue of the fact that we've had to quarantine and, and shut down to a great extent. You know, I really have seen a huge increase in interest in meditation and practices exactly because of that. I think for some time and maybe still, people were distracting themselves with whatever their computers, uh, Mm -hmm. shows, intoxicants, (laughs) whatever could help them cope. But there's a point, I think, where people reach a breaking point and really need to start to tend to what keeps arising, you know, and I've, I've seen that with a number of friends, friends who have, again, I never proselytize and never even recommend meditation to people, but a lot of people over the years have started meditating, friends of mine who didn't come from this path originally. And this year, I've seen all my friends who I thought never would meditate mm-hmm. finally come to 
an interest in, okay, how do I tend to this? Like, how do I tend to what's going on with me? Yeah, I agree. There's some retreat quality to it. And the thing about retreat is that you're in community, you have guidance for how to address what's coming up. And so I think the challenge, especially for folks who are maybe newer to practice or, you know, not used to self-guiding is to continue to tend to it, you know, not bypass it, not bury it. Mm. Of course, we're going to distract ourselves sometime, you know, and I go into my Netflix rabbit holes and numbing, but really learning how to practice and be with what's arising is the opportunity. That's good to hear. I hadn't heard that. I'm surprised I hadn't because I'm talking to people all the time, but I'm really glad to hear that there's an uptick in interest in in meditation. You're probably experiencing it because you actually teach online courses and stuff, right? Yes. And, you know, I'm always surprised that there will be, especially in the early days of the pandemic, you know, you would do something online and hundreds of people would show up and... Mm -hmm. I'm really like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people and 10% happier was doing something every day of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. just a short meditation on YouTube live. And, you know, I don't know how many people, thousands probably showed up for those. But I was away actually for three months, just came back recently and did an event the other night that 500 people had registered for and about half showed up for. So there is, there's still this hunger and maybe a deepening kind of understanding of the practice that it does take, you know, the energy that people really want to put towards that now, because there is a refinement of life and just recognizing what's important and people realizing waking up is the most important thing we could all do. I bet you that'll have a lasting impact. It's been sort of a breakthrough moment in a way, but I bet you it will continue. If it does, then that's a blessing of this whole episode we're going through. I think there are a lot of blessings. It's been really heartbreaking and challenging, and we're not, as moderns, good at grieving. And by moderns, I mean globally, not just Westerners, but there's sort of a loss of certain practices and ways of dealing with loss itself. But I think that as long as we really allow ourselves to, again, experience this in transformative ways, including grieving what we've lost, not just kind of bypassing to, okay, it's a portal and now we're on the other side, but really honoring what we've been through, I think there's huge possibilities for us as a world, really. Have you ever thought about or read about the idea that a lot of ancient traditions and cultures predicted some sort of golden age or some sort of age of enlightenment? Have you ever thought about that? I've read a couple of books about it back in the 70s. I thought of it more in terms of a lot of things crumbling that really didn't belong in such an age, and we, we see a fair amount of that happening. But what you've just been saying is the bright side to it, which is that an upsurge in uh, interest in, in and participation in spirituality. Maybe we're on the, the cusp of something like that. Have you ever considered it? I don't know much about what you're referencing in terms of ancient ideas about that, but I've been contemplating it a lot recently as I see these changes and, again, see the brightness of these young people who are just, like, so much smarter, so much more tuned, healing at a much younger age than I did And really being such lights in the world, I think today or tomorrow is the Parkland anniversary. Oh, yeah. Parkland shooting. And those kids are, I mean, 
they are incredible and phenomenal. And, you know, the march on Washington that came out of that, some of the speakers were 11, 12, 13, and so articulate, so visionary. You know, Greta Thunberg, you know, just so many young leaders, the younger leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement that are just leading with such authenticity, such clarity, and love, really. That, to me, is a signal of that. And again, as I mentioned, so many of them opening to spiritualities and, and different ways of knowing that it took me, a lot, even, even though I started fairly young for my age, it took me a much longer time to kind of grasp. So there is, for me, like some faith in evolution and in our collective, and I mean collective in the, the largest sense of that world, not just human. And so although we are likely to go through a lot of environmental challenges in the coming years, I also feel that people are waking up to the changes that we need to make. Yeah, that's really good. Do you know Catherine Ingram? I don't know her. I've, I know of her, yeah. I interviewed her a while back, and um, she wrote an article a couple of years ago, which was kind of a doomsday article, really. And there yeah, other, I read that. Yeah, did you, me too. And then I kind of got into a conversation with her about it through email. But what we're referring to for the sake of the audience is she felt that the environmental train is not going to be stopped before it goes off the bridge, you know, and that within the next decade or so, we, we all may die. And, you know, I was pushing back and saying, well, I can see how the evidence might suggest that, but I think nature's got a few tricks up her sleeve and something's going to turn this around. But again, the, the kind of stuff you're saying gives me hope. Yeah. It's evidence that something's going to happen. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, really appreciate all the work she put into that, because there's a huge amount of effort, considering that's not her field, you know, to kind of gather all of that information in one place and have it be such a great resource. And the thing that I was questioning when I read it, maybe somewhat like you, was it was such a, a materialist, factual, scientific analysis that allowed for no possibility of mystery and wonder and the power of nature, not to mention the power of other beings, humans or non-human and unseen beings, or the full kind of mystical possibility that we're not the only ones driving this train, to continue with your metaphor. Yeah. Like, we're not the conductors, actually. We're passengers at best. It gave humans a lot of power and agency, that, that idea. One thing that I've, I've always thought ever since I started learning about this stuff, and this is kind of obvious, is that the more fundamental levels of nature's functioning are more powerful, they're more influential. So, for instance, the molecular is more powerful than the mechanical, and the atomic mm. is more powerful than the molecular. Subatomic is probably more powerful than the atomic. In spiritual circles, it's often understood that consciousness is the most fundamental thing. And so if that is true, and I believe it is, and you probably do, then if somehow we can take recourse to technologies of consciousness, if we want to call them that, then that will have the greatest leverage and be able to effect the greatest change, doing less and accomplishing more by functioning from that level. 
I was reminded of that when you said that her analysis seemed kind of just too scientific and mechanistic and uh, didn't take into account the deeper mechanics that probably are at play here. Yeah, and, you know, the ancients might have called it ritual or ceremony or invocations. There's so many ways that consciousness and reality lives. Yeah, when we sort of are just counting, like, carbon molecules and not investigating and exploring our lived love of nature and our relationship to the elements. And it's not just about wild nature and being in the midst of a national park, but just our relationship to the nature around us. I live in a very urban environment and I feel, you know, part of my practice is the practice of the elements or the practice of being in contact with all of reality, that rocks are people and my table is people and, you know, my computer is people in the sense that all of this reality is alive. Yeah, it's all consciousness appearing as this, that, and the other thing. Exactly. Maybe we've said it, but it could very well be that this upsurge in spirituality is God's response or nature's response to our predicament. You know, it's like, okay, if we could anthropomorphize nature and say, he or she might say, okay, well, these people are screwed unless I step in and do something, so let's give them an infusion of consciousness and, and have that proliferate in society, and that will bring things back into balance. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many metaphors we could use. If we're in our, you know, tween phase and we have to actually learn how to be responsible adults and uh, adolescents and, but, you know, we might crash a car mm-hmm. along the way and, and have to learn the lesson the hard way. And so we, we are still evolving too. Yeah, yeah. I like that metaphor. Humanity is, for the most part, rebellious teenagers with here and there an adult. <laughs> <laughs> A question came in. This might be a bit of an abrupt gear shift. This is from, I don't know whether he pronounces it or she pronounces it, Aide or Ade, A-D-E, from New York. Maybe you know this person. Asks, um, how important is having one's hierarchy of needs met, as outlined in Maslow's pyramid, on one's path to enlightenment? Can one get stuck at one level of the pyramid because it offers a sense of safety? For example, it seems that the 12-step programs are largely successful because they fulfill our need for belonging. But can this stall progress? This is so funny because the other night someone asked me about Maslow's hierarchy, and I don't really know it, so I'm not the best. Let me just say uh, a thing or two about it. So basically Maslow said it was a pyramid, and maybe Dan can even send me a graphic and I'll show it. But it was like basically, you know, you need shelter and food and there's a you know sex drive. And then a, a, a higher stage up is something a bit more refined and not quite as critical to staying alive and and then up at the very peak of the pyramid you get self-actualization and the idea is that in if these lower levels of the pyramid are not met you're probably not going to get interested in the top level of the pyramid yeah you know and i'm sure i've heard it before in the psychology class i didn't do very well in in undergrad different metaphors are great for different things and i'm sure there of course there is some truth to that I, I must tend to my basic needs, um, but even in order to to have a practice, you know, to be able to take retreat or take time to tend to a practice. But metaphors are what we have because it's so hard to explain reality. And I tend to 
shrink away from anything that is a hierarchy? Well, maybe one way I can make it relevant is, can you blame people living in the South Bronx for not being interested in meditation or spirituality? Or maybe some of them are now, but, or, you know, people who are going through a famine or living in refugee camps in Syria or something like that. There's some misunderstanding there. You know, this comes to margins and centers. Having worked in refugee camps and, you know, living close to the South Bronx, living in central Brooklyn, actually there's a lot of spirituality in these spaces. Like that's actually probably what people tend to turn to most and that we see that in the African-American community. Slavery was survived because of a deep connection to spirit and the syncretization of African ways of knowing with the Christianity that was on hand. And so... Slavery survived or the slaves managed to survive? You mean because they had that that support? Enslaved people survived. They survived, yes. It's maybe a good metaphor for understanding an aspect of our, our lives, but I'm not sure it speaks to the truth, the whole truth of our reality. I wouldn't equate my whole life with that hierarchy of needs. Right. Since we mentioned it, I'm just going to quickly show it on the screen, and I also emailed it to you so that you can see it. You know, he kind of, I guess, was saying that your interest in the, in the higher ones isn't going to really kick in until the, the lower ones are met. And this fellow's question was, could we get stuck trying to just maintain safety and not move on to the higher values and you know how can we move on to them i think that's what he was asking yeah so yeah i don't know what gender this person is but again i appreciate having many types of metaphors language is metaphor that's the way we understand our situation and our own awakening process and for me just even looking at it now that you sent it to me the pyramid itself is already creating some kind of idea about which is larger, which is the foundation, which is more important. And I'm not sure that, yeah, that doesn't speak to me as true for how I've experienced things. Alrighty. Moving on through your book. Here's one I don't think we've talked about. Curiosity first. Why question woo-woo? <laughs> yeah. In that section, I talk about the fact that I was journaling many years ago, and I realized that creative and reactive are the same word. The C just moves. And my friend Rebecca asked me, you know, what's the C? And I kind of played around with consciousness and compassion and different C words. But really, curiosity came as the most powerful for me, that when we're not curious, we don't take that pause to understand what's happening, whether that's internally or externally happening we could just go into a kind of reactive response. It's usually from our habituation, from our conditioning, from our previous perceptions of things. We rarely meet things in the world that are totally brand new, you know, and that um, completely surprise us. So when we walk into situations, and this is why we have unconscious bias and implicit bias about people, about different spaces or things, that we, we are coming with a database in our minds that comes from our own experiences, from media, from culture. And so if we don't stay curious about what we're meeting, what we're encountering, then we're going to have a reactive response. And so true creativity, that the creative response comes from that curiosity. I would never say that we come as a blank slate because that's not possible, but we come with just an openness to any experience. 
And so I talk about the word woo-woo, which is something that I use often. And, you know, I, I posted recently about this on Instagram and had a lot of conversation with different people there. And some people use that word to dismiss kind of a new age, vague, uh, often appropriative spirituality that's kind of not examined. Is That's some people's experience of it, and they call that woo-woo. But the way I often used woo-woo and the way I've heard it, especially in mindfulness communities, is to dismiss things that are unscientific and not provable. So it's kind of returning to the conversation we had before about you know, dismissing the mysterious and, you know, relying on a particular lens or way of explaining something as more powerful, more valid. So I was asking people to question this term as a way to kind of explore, if they use the term in this way, which many people do, kind of explore what perceptions, what views, what opinions are you coming with? And can you examine those? You know, can you first notice them? And can you be curious and kind of creative when you approach new things, including new practices. Yeah. When I think about curiosity, I think about children. I Probably we all do, because children are so insatiably curious you know, about every little thing. And everything you say, they say, why? And then you answer that, and they say, well, why? <laughs> and most of us kind of lose that. So what would you recommend as a way of um, reviving that childlike curiosity and uh, keeping it alive, no matter how old we are? You know, the first step for me is that embodied awareness. I go through these chapters, the sequences, although it's not sequential really in our lives, but ground yourself, know yourself, love yourself, connect yourself, be yourself. And so the ground yourself is the restarting point for any moment, really. And, you know, I'm doing it right now. I continually feel my feet on the floor as a way to reconnect to the moment, you know, reconnect to what's really happening, not kind of just immediately going into my spiel, which I've probably done you know, so many times since the book came out of talking about things in a particular way, but really pausing, listening. For some of us, it helps to slow down for many of us to feel what's happening rather than just come from up here and thinking in the head. For me, as I was saying before, not being taught or conditioned to like be in my body, like feeling my seat on the floor and feeling what sensations or emotions are coming up, like right there, it kind of breaks the habit, like coming in with my preconceived perceptions or conceptions about something and reconnects me to a moment where I can actually receive, not go into a habituated response. So, you know, that's really the starting point for me. Yeah, that sounds good. Habituated, I think, is a key word there. I think we come in very fresh and curious and creative and so on as, as little kids, and we get crusted over by the pressures and routines of life, and um, they, it kind of kills our inner genius over time. I do think it can be revived, though, and uh, you know, spiritual practice is key to that. I think it breaks the crust, you know, it helps to clear it away. And then that natural, innocent, remember Christ said, you know, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. But I think that innocence is there in even the most cynical, crusted over person. And it's just a matter of somehow breaking the shells and removing the crust. And um, that's not something we can do for another person, but it's something that anyone can do for themselves if they have the incentive. Yeah, 
It's definitely part of the intention of many spiritual paths. And I think that it's one of the hardest things to actually bring forth because so many of us just want these practices to make us feel good. And for a lot of us, feel good means just shut down and not deal with the difficulties, you know, the difficulties that are within us. So the traumas and the the things that we have to work through, and there's a certain amount of that's why the next step is know yourself <laughs> of just um, self-exploration that that's going to take. But it's also comes up in challenges with other people. I know coming from a, a tradition that really sometimes overemphasizes and even fetishizes silence, that it's in relationship that a lot of times that killing off of that innocence happens because relationships are so fraught. You know, there's so much projection going on and so many ways that we can retreat into our spirituality as a way to hide from what's being reflected back to us. And so I know that community is one of the ways that has really brought that up for me in very challenging ways, like seeing parts of myself that I don't like. That's why love yourself comes right after know yourself and actually go kind of hand in hand of really meeting whatever comes up with this sense of kindness and compassion and allowing these things to kind of work themselves out. One thought that came up as you were speaking, for some reason, I feel moved to say this, is just that whatever reason motivates a person to start meditation or start on the spiritual path is good enough. And other reasons will come along. Like, you know, when I used to teach meditation, people would come because they had migraines or insomnia or high blood pressure or, you know, something like that. And, and yeah, that's good enough reason to start. Hopefully it'll help you with those things. But then, you know, after a few months, a few years, their motivations had shifted significantly and they were looking at kind of more profound things that we've been talking about. Yeah, And maybe their blood pressure had gone down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's a kind of wake-up call or heartache or literally with some of those conditions that, as you say, is just as valid but also just as poignant as I want to awaken. Yeah, in fact, when I first learned, I, I kind of thought the meditation I was practicing was just a non-medicinal tranquilizer, you know? I enjoyed it, and it was really helping my life. I had dropped out of high school, I, but after learning to meditate, I got back into a community college, and things were all going better. But I really wanted enlightenment, you know? So I actually applied to a Zen monastery up in Rochester, New York, and they said, well, you have to go work with a local Roshi first for six months before we'll consider it. So I went and visited this guy, and in Manhattan. And, uh, but then, you know, shortly thereafter, it dawned on me that what I'm practicing actually was about higher levels of consciousness, even though that hadn't been really the introductory presentation so much. And Yeah, it doesn't take a lot, I think, to allow meditation, but really just awareness to open us up to wonder. Yeah, right? yeah. And open up to us up to the mystery. It's not like we have to like reach the eighth level of right, whatever yeah. or something. Like we can, as you said at the very start, you know, we can just have an encounter with an animal or an object or a text or our own experience and really tap into that. Yeah, I often find just walking down the street, you know, walking the dogs or something, I, I, I look at a worm or I look at a blade of grass and I just contemplate the wonder of it. But there's something amazing about every little mundane perception if we actually 
consider what we're seeing. You know, how mm-hmm. many cells are in that worm and, and what an incredible complex mechanism is each little cell. And if the worm gets cut in half, he heals up and there's two worms. And I mean, there's just so many interesting, every little thing is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I look at an acorn. We were in Sicily for three months recently where my husband grew up and we were picking different acorn seeds to plant, to replant. And they were two different oak trees. And I was like, how does this one know that it's that oak tree and this one know that it's that oak tree? You know, it's just a miracle or wonder. Sometimes I'll just look at my hand and think this was my hand when I was two, except it's not that hand, but it's the same body and the same consciousness. I mean, it just takes one moment of contemplation. And that's why, you know, I love the, the term contemplative and contemplative practices to bust us open and allow us to get out of that kind of habituated patterning, a lot of it being from traumatic patterning that we have and start to really heal back into that belonging. Do you know who Shakti Katarina Maji is? Mm-mm. She's a wonderful person and a wonderful teacher, and she lives in Sicily. So next time you go to Sicily, let me know because I want to introduce you to her. Oh, great! You cool. can go go visit her. She has a beautiful place there, and I, you 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 two would really hit it off. Oh, great! Yeah. A question came in from John in Waynesville, and John has sent in several questions in previous weeks, and I always wonder where Waynesville is. So tell us sometime, John. Where's Waynesville? But anyway, John's question is. What is the first course of action in seeking happiness or a more joyful existence? Oh, wow. That's such a beautiful question. And, you know, to me, that question is the first opening. I say in the book that on another journaling experience, I realized that belonging is an imperative to be longing. Mm. And that longing for connection is actually the doorway, that we think it's the pain that we have to get away from, but it's actually the, the signal or the start or maybe the start and the end, because we, we kind of always can connect to that longing. And to me, that longing for joy, for freedom, for connection, for belonging is this sweet ache an ache in a sense of a muscle that has done good, you know, not an ache as in a wound or a blow, but really something that we continually practice. Good. Well, I hope, hope that answers it, John. If it doesn't, feel free to send in a follow-up question. So you've mentioned the chapters of your book. I'm going to run through them again quickly. Delusion of Separation, Domination, Ground Yourself, Know Yourself, Love Yourself, Connect Yourself, and Be Yourself. Where are the gaps in what we've been discussing so far? You know, I mentioned that love yourself could be the motto for the whole book. Could have been probably every chapter. There's a way in which I think one of the major challenges of being a modern is that separation from that love, that separation from that sense of place and personhood embedded in a community of loving care. So many of us have been disconnected from our ancestral cultures, from being embedded in families. Loneliness, even before the pandemic, was at epidemic levels through much of the Western world. You know, there are whole ministries to address loneliness in different parts of Europe that suicide and depression, anxiety, or skyrocketing rates. Again, this is before the pandemic have only gone up. So 
this practice of knowing yourself, and again, it, it has to start with grounding yourself so that it's not just an intellectual exercise, it's this embodied way of being in touch with the somatic experience of all of these emotions or thoughts that keep us from not belonging. It also needs to be grounded in really knowing ourselves because there's so many parts of ourselves, including the shadow parts that we don't want to acknowledge or look at. So for me, just that real emphasis on loving yourself, the practices and the things that we can take on to help support that, I think is, is really key. Yeah, it seems like if you don't know yourself, then how can you love yourself? Who or what are you going to love if you don't even know what you are <laughs> or who you are? Yeah, and you know, and again, that's really looking at the things that we usually hide from and that we're projecting outwards onto other people and this shadow parts, inner critics and, you know, all the the juicy bits. And I presume that when you say know yourself, you don't just mean your individuality and all of its features and aspects and all that, because that's not the, the entirety of the self. Whether one has a Buddhist or a more of a Vedantic background, there's a deeper dimension to what we are, which is ultimately universal, like wave and ocean analogy. Yeah. I use the Zen saying of to study the Buddha way is to know the self, to know the self is to forget the self, to forget the self is to become one with myriad things. But that chapter really is asking people to stay with knowing the self that we're often running away from, okay. that we're trying to fix, that we're trying to bypass. You know, bypass. And it's really in connect yourself after love yourself, mm. that I, I, I really look at, you know, dissolving the barriers. And I talk about the elements practice and other ways of understanding our interconnection you know, that goes beyond our small self. I mention in that chapter something that is a deep part of the mindfulness, the traditional classical mindfulness practices. So, you know, what we call mindfulness for the most part comes from the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a particular teaching from the Pali Canon. We've taken like very choice points from the Satipatthana Sutta and kind of ignored some of the others. And one of those is, and it, it, it's in the first foundation, there are four foundations of mindfulness, is this practice of mindfulness of the four elements. And I just find it so fascinating that we've left it out. And I have some you know, thoughts about the, the bypass of things that seem more elemental, literally, but also kind of basic and not important because they're not about us and our psychology. But it's such a profound practice. I'm really like on a one-woman mission to like bring this back into a mainstream practice. And also because the elements practice, you find it through ancient cultures literally around the world, like every continent, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, you find it in Ayurveda, you find it in Chinese medicine, Native American, indigenous spiritualities around the world. Sometimes it's not four, it's five or six, but this idea of using the natural world and its elements as metaphors for interconnection is so powerful. And it's such a simple practice. It's, it's really just to contemplate and be aware of earth element, water element, fire element, and air element internally, externally, and both internally and externally. So it's a felt sense experience of those. 
inside of us. It's a contemplation and an experience of those around us. And then it's understanding that it dissolves that barrier between inner and outer to recognize that we are these elements. So, you know, I love it as a very simple but profound practice, like practical practice. I don't know if you could elaborate on it more here to make it even more clear to people what what you're saying, but I presume you teach this in courses? I do, yeah. Yeah. I've I've done an online course for Tricycle Magazine that's accessible and goes through each element. I have a couple of talks or meditation on my website too. But it's really simple, you know, the earth element is what's solid, so we really feel that sense of groundedness and we start with that. It always starts with the earth element, we see that in cultures around the world, you know, starting with these kind of grounded practices. And so you feel your muscles, you feel your bones, you feel the weight of your body and feel that density and connection with the earth underneath. And then you move to the water element, which is all that is fluid and moist. And so, you know, you can feel the wetness behind your eyes or in your mouth and acknowledge that we're mostly water. The world is mostly water and kind of the paradox of that, like we don't feel mostly liquid, but we are. And then to feel the fire element as kind of temperature in the body and the energy and power of that and, you know, the sun epitomizing that. And then to feel the air element, which is maybe a more common practice for people to feel the breath and to recognize that this is an element that connects us not only in this moment with each other, but throughout time that we're breathing the same air as, you know, all the ancients, all our ancestors. Literally, I mean, right now, each breath you and I take, we're breathing in some molecules that Buddha or Jesus breathed. Again, a really simple practice. Yeah, I always say, and I say in the book, we're not practicing to become good meditators. We're practicing to kind of bring this kind of awareness into our lives. And so I use the elements practice all day. If I'm in the shower, you know, I'm feeling water. If I'm turning on the stove, I'm interacting with fire. And so it it kind of switches us out of this wordy, logical, mind-centered way of interacting and to to really come into that, as we've been speaking about, that that knowing that everything is consciousness. Yeah, it sounds like it would make one more grounded and integrated and living in not only the now, but in terms of living in what they're actually experiencing as opposed to being sort of off in la-la land while they're doing something else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I once read a paper by a physicist who uh, went into a... It's, in fact, people could look it up if they want. It's by John Hagelin, and it's called It's Consciousness, the Unified Field, and you'll find it if you do a Google search. But he went into this whole explanation about how this idea of four or five elements, some say akasha or space is the fifth, is not just some primitive ancient understanding. He correlated it with modern physics in terms of the spin types of fundamental particles. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Most of the paper is over my head because he, he's a bunch of equations and all sorts of things. But that bit I remember and that, you know, he felt like they had really gotten onto something in terms of the most fundamental way that nature actually functions as understood by oh, modern physics. Cool. Yeah, I would love to look that up. So that mostly relates to connect yourself. Are these all sequential? Again, metaphors, all we have, and it's given us beautiful things like poetry, but it's also given us linear thought. So yes, I kind of lay them out in a sequential way, and I don't think that it's sequential in our lived life. So I do believe we have to have some kind of embodied knowing 
to really go into this question of belonging. But yeah, it's not like I get up and use a five-step process <laughs> throughout my day to meet every moment. So yeah, be yourself is kind of the last one, but I find it such a beautiful one. In that chapter, I talk a lot about my sister who is intellectually disabled. She's my older sister, but I've you know really been entrusted with a lot of care for her since a young age. I kind of use her experience of our mother's death and our relationship together to explore this idea of really being your full self. I talk some about intimacy and imagination there and the importance of being intimate with our experience. And I think that's what the previous six chapters were really about, of you know learning how to kind of become intimate with ourselves and with the world around us. And then imagination as the place where that curiosity can lead to creativity, to generative opportunities. And I use where my sister lives now, which is a, a community in upstate New York that's a Rudolf Steiner connected community. They're called Camp Hill Communities. And it's one of just the most beautiful, thoughtful, imaginative, intimate, creative places I've ever been. And I actually use this um, idea of a, the conspiracy of consciousness and talk about how, you know, to conspire means to breathe with. We use conspiracy often nowadays, especially as a pejorative but that we can conspire in positive ways. Like we can conspire as we are doing now um, to, to actually encourage and invite more wisdom, compassion, awakening into the world. You said in one of your earlier chapters that your sister, although she's intellectually challenged, she's emotionally very developed. Yeah, so she's um, 54 and she has led 54 years of life. You know, she's a woman and she's been through surgeries and losses and lived in different continents and traveled back and forth a lot. So she has this wisdom of just what it means to be alive that long. And she can't express it necessarily through language and intellectual ways, but she is very emotionally astute and so responds to... Doesn't miss a trick, right? She really doesn't. When we were living together, both grieving our mom's death, she lived with us for a year after my mom died. You know, some days I would wake up and she could just tell I was just tired and exhausted from trying to figure out what would be the best situation for her and exploring options. And she would just stand at you know the other end of the hallway and she'd say, come here, come <laughs> here, come here, and she'd give me a big hug. And, That's you know, great. Just, yeah, just that real emotional openness and honesty. I wasn't totally clear on how your sister was an example of be yourself, but is that it right there? I mean, she just, um, no, what you see is what you get, no guile, no subterfuge, no, no complications like many people have. Yeah, and, you know, just her own way of processing, like the grief that we were processing together. She did this thing um, for weeks <laughs> after my mother died where she would uh, name everyone who had died that she knew as kind of a way to process her mom's death. She would say, you know, so-and-so died and, um, you know, her uncle died and... Uh, Michael Jackson died and you know, just go through this list, which was a long list. Yeah. And then she would go through the list of everyone who was going to die, which is everybody, everyone. Right. 
So she would kind of go through the list of all of our family and friends and our dog. And and sometimes she would get things wrong. She'd be like, Stevie Wonder's dead. And I'm like, no, Stevie Wonder's not dead yet. Obama's going to die. You know, she just like whatever. It was a death meditation. It's kind which of is wise. Also yeah, it's very wise, yeah. Yeah, which is, a, you know, is part of the mindfulness practice is the yeah. mindfulness of death and contemplating death. And that was her way of processing. And it was a beautiful meditation for us, mm-hmm. right? It could, she would do this multiple times a day for weeks. It's interesting. And so we would just kind of go through this lesson patiently, kind of say, yes, 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 no, yes, no. And it was such a gift, right, of just being herself of like, and and um, giving us this incredible teaching. That's great. Yeah, I mean, contemplating death is a spiritual practice. You remember that famous painting of a, a monk looking at a skull? You know, I forget what that painting is, but um, mm. and uh, various spiritual teachers, Shankara, Ama, various others have said that you know we should kind of like live life as though the, our next breath may be our last. Uh, or as Amma put it, live like a, a bird perched on a branch that might just break at any time. And there's nothing morbid about it, you know, nothing scary about it. It's it's more like get real, you know, and, and realize the ephemeral nature of life and make hay while the sun shines. Right, yeah, and she wasn't, you know, sad or morbid. She was just really matter-of-fact and such a, a gift and invitation, really. Here's a nice question that came in from someone named Leslie in Amesbury. My geography skills are weak. I don't know where Amesbury is. But uh, Leslie says, I work with kids with social-emotional problems. Do you have any suggestion for ways of working with students like this, elementary and middle school, to help support their healing from trauma? Big question, but just wondering if you have thoughts on this. Yeah, you know, thank you for doing that work, first of all, because that is the work we need to really start young and to address some of these things. There's been huge growth in what's often called trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Um, There's actually a book, I think it's by David Trevlane, and it's of that title. But there, you know, a lot of work being done around somatic experiencing, which is a trauma-centered therapeutic approach that really recognizes that trauma is stored in the body. There's the work of Basil van der Kolk, who coined the term and has the book, The Body Keeps the Score. So there are a lot of resources out there, more and more coming into the educational field. You might want to check out Mindful Schools, which is based on the West Coast and has a lot of online programming as well and um, is is very connected to that trauma-sensitive framework. But there, there are more and more resources. And, you know, I would just say as a, as a big caveat and a starting point is to take care of one's own self. So especially people who are in caregiving professions, who are first responders, who are teachers, there can be this emphasis on kind of serving, giving, taking care of others. But uh, the only way we can really serve is by leading as, as an example and then sharing, you know, kind of what's real for us. So just to to really make sure that you are not just seeking that out in service of others, but that you take care of your own needs. Personally, I've always felt meditation to be such a battery recharger. You can just feel exhausted and burned out and sit down and meditate, and you come out half an hour or an hour later feeling like 
you know, you just had a good night's sleep or something. It really can recharge you. So, and if you can do that regularly, you build up a, a reservoir or something that carries you through difficult situations. So I wish all the healthcare workers and, and people who are experiencing burnout could have access to something like that. Yeah, you know, to plug 10% Happier, I get nothing from this, even though I work for them. But they have made their app free for first responders, for healthcare workers, for grocery workers, for teachers, and are open if you can't afford the app. Um, you know, you can always contact them and they'll help you. How expensive is it if you pay for it? I don't think it's that much. It's like you a know, monthly subscription than, or something? I think it's probably around $10 a month, something like that. Yeah, Sam Harris does that too with his uh, Waking Up app. It's like, if you can't afford it, it's free. No questions asked. The Harrises are very generous, boys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything we haven't covered? You know, I don't shy away at all in the book, and we've talked a little bit about it uh, around issues of identity and race and just coming from different realities, perspectives, from different points along those margins and centers. And, you know, it's something that I would like to just emphasize that that is um, a place of possibility, that we've had so much wounding in this country, but around the world, and these separative identities. And so in that equation of we are not separate and we are not the same, that we have this real opportunity to learn from each other. And I would say that one balance of that equation is that a lot of folks of color and especially black people in this country to survive, we've learned a lot about white culture, about dominant culture. That's the general education and kind of information we get. And just a real invitation for white folks who are listening and in general to kind of use this as an opportunity to um, not kind of fall into the bypass of we are not separate, but really use uh, the diversity that we're surrounded by to learn about other cultures, to read books from other perspectives, from other communities, and just the richness that I've seen that comes from that. I work in a lot of multicultural communities, and I run a lot of retreats where we really intentionally create a balance particularly around race, but other identities as well. And it is so healing for everyone when there can be that opportunity to really, especially for white folks, to step forward around that. Can you give two or three specific recommendations? You mentioned books. What can people do? I have a friend, I like to tell this story, my friend Elaine, who is in her 60s or mid-60s. She's a white Jewish, Ashkenazi Jewish lesbian and we used to teach together a lot and uh, became very close and we would see each other a few times a week usually when I was working full time at a meditation center. And we'd always talk about what books we were reading. And for a while, every time I saw Elaine, she would name a novel or a nonfiction book by a black woman. And so finally, I just said, Elaine, what's going on? And she said, oh, well, you know, I've spent 60-some years basically only reading white people, so I've decided I'm only going to read black women for the next... <laughs> and she went to a website, and she kind of just cut and pasted the, the reading list. I think it was Well-Read Black Girl or one of those, you know, wonderful sites. And she was just kind of making the commitment to change her perspectives, change her understanding of things 
you know, kind of see things from the margins. And so I challenge myself with that. I, you know, try and educate myself in things that I'm less aware of. So a few years ago, some time really learning about what's called fat liberation and body positivity and looking at the ways that I had absorbed all these ideas about fatness and the biases that I had had kind of just adopted from the society and started listening to fat people and fat activists online. Um, I, I take it they don't mind uh, using that word. Yeah, they actually reclaim that word. Okay. Yeah, so I learned that, you know, yeah. and so there's there was that to learn. Recently, I've been trying to educate myself more on um, disability activism and ableism and, you know, really had like had some eye-opening perspectives about ability and disability and just by reading books and following different people on Instagram there's a great film called Crip Camp on Netflix that is just beautiful it's C- so CRIP like the Crips the Bloods and the Crips yes you know a reclamation of crippled so this oh, that, camp that kind of it's the story of this summer camp that existed in the late 60s and early 70s for disabled youth and um, then tells the story of the activists who worked to pass the American with Disabilities Act. It was a whole history of activism that I'd never been aware of and a conversation and perspectives that I wasn't aware of. So, you know, broadening our awareness, broadening our understanding by changing what we take in, by noticing what we take in, and looking for different voices, you know, that's really the beauty in we are not the same. I'm glad we drifted onto this topic because, you know, we started talking, we started out talking about separation. Most of us are oblivious to such a great extent of what other people go through, like the kinds of people you just mentioned. And not only are we oblivious, but we have all these biases and, and attitudes and all that we're not even aware of. And it, it really does seem to be, whether you frame it in a spiritual context in terms of you know spiritual growth or just being a decent human being, <laughs> functioning properly in society, it seems like it, the time has come that we really need to sensitize and educate ourselves about these other perspectives in order not to be a jerk unwittingly, in order, in order to be inclusive and kind and compassionate. And in order to awaken. Yeah, right. Really. That's because if we have these blind spots, then we're not seeing clearly. And so that's, again, there's this subtle way, and I can fall into this too, where we think that the absolute truth is more true, <laughs> like it's truthier in some way, even though it's called the two truths. And so this is where that relative spiritual exploration, and I do feel that learning and loving each other is part of our spiritual practice that that relative spiritual exploration is just as much a part of our awakening because as our consciousness awakens to all the ways that we've actually created barriers between us and others, it actually starts to dissolve those barriers. Well, first show us that they were there and see the kind of separative consciousness that we're moving with unconsciously. And really, that's where we're headed, is to uh, this unbounded love that is not clouded by these unconscious separative ways. Yeah, that's a really good point. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you, you can't appreciate unbounded love if you have all these blind spots about people, about groups of people and so on. I just want to touch on the absolute truth being more true point. 
I know where that idea comes from. The absolute truth is permanent, I guess you could say. You know, there's a verse in the Gita which goes, the, the unreal has no being, the, the real never ceases to be. So, you know, the gold ornaments might be melted down and you might turn rings into bracelets or something like that, but it's all, the gold is the same gold in both circumstances. I think it's just a perceptual misunderstanding because we are only seeing things in terms of our understanding of time. But I think material manifestation, it's timeless in its own way. Yeah. There's actually a traditional tug-of-war between these perspectives, between Vedanta and uh, Kashmir Shaivism, where Vedanta has the Manduka Upanishad, which is kind of like nothing ever happened, the universe never even manifested, the whole thing is an illusion, whereas Kashmir Shaivism is more like, wait a minute, the, this whole relative creation is actually the divine, and more of a, an embodied playful form and is worthy of reverence and you know not something to just sort of be escaped from as as soon as possible i just want to mention on this theme that we've been just discussing that i've been going to the science and non-duality conference for years although it was canceled lately because of the pandemic but at one point there's a friend of mine named vera shalambert who's been on bad cap and she started going and she went to the organizers and said wait a minute where are all the women? Where are all the black people? Where are all the gay people or whatever? Because there was just a lot of white men up on stage talking non-duality. So they really took that to heart, and um, the whole thing has become extremely diverse. They also have a whole group called the Young Sages, all these kids under the age of 22 or something like that, and they all come on a scholarship, and there's a whole group of young people thinking and planning and getting up and reading poetry to the whole group, and it's really cool to see how that has evolved. Yeah, that's beautiful. Happy to hear that, and yes, that's also a group that I, I really try and learn from and have been really privileged because of the work I did for so many years to have been influenced by youth culture for um, most of my adult life, but I try and really pay attention to the kids because they understand so much, and and then they often have such incredible ways of expressing it. Good. All right, I'm going to show your website here, sabinesalase.com. Calm, right? Yes. You belong. You are not separate. You never were. You never will be. So I'll be linking to this from your page on batgap.com. And if people go there, there's an events menu, which I'm sure you have all kinds of things that you have planned. So as usual, people can probably just go there and look at what you have to offer and get on your mailing list and everything else. But is there anything particular, either coming up soon or... You know, if someone listens to this a few years from now, or maybe both things that you want to call people's attention to? Yeah, I think the best way is my website, and my name won't change, so my website probably won't change either. My newsletter I send out on the new moon and full moon. and it's a nice practice. Uh, it's usually very filled with kind of musings and resources. I might list events, but it's not kind of a promotional newsletter. It's really, I try and share what practices and, you know, also music and books and things are influencing me and, you know, hope that it's nourishing for other folks too. Good. And and you are on the 10% Happier podcast or app quite a bit. I listen to quite a few of those during the week, so people can check that out too. Yeah, I'm on the app, and I've been on the podcast a few times, and yeah, people can find me there too. Good. 
Well, thanks, Sabine. I've enjoyed spending some time with you. Yeah, it's been really great, Rick. It's a really beautiful conversation. I didn't know where it would start or go, but it really was, yeah, fun exploration. I didn't know either, actually. <laughs> I was kind of... Uh, Larry King has the had the he died recently, but he had the philosophy that he didn't want to know anything about his guests because he wanted to be just like his audience and just totally in the dark and start asking questions. Oh, Some, beautiful! Sometimes that worked for him. Sometimes it didn't. Interviewed uh, Marlon Brando one time, and he said it was his toughest interview because he'd ask a question and Brando would just say, "He wouldn't know what to do next." I remember uh, there was one clip they played recently after he died where he was interviewing Jerry Seinfeld and, and you know he obviously hadn't really prepared and Seinfeld said do you even know who I am? <laughs> I have a sort of a balance between preparation and winging it. I think you struck a beautiful balance. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Uh, so and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. As you know this is an ongoing series. If this is new to you, go to batgap.com and you can sign up to be notified by email of new ones or if you'd like YouTube to notify you just subscribe to subscribe on YouTube. As you may know there's that little after you hit the subscribe button a little bell pops up and then if you click the bell then you can opt to be notified even more uh, or all the time of any time there's a new thing which in my case is about once a week. Um, my next guest will be Richard Tarnas, who is a cosmologist teaching at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And I have two great, big, humongous books that he just sent me that I'm going to try to read as much of during the week because cosmology fascinates me. And so that should be an interesting conversation. And, of course, there are many others scheduled, and we continue to schedule them. If you'd like to see what's upcoming, there's an upcoming interviews page on BatGap where... We show everything that has been scheduled. So, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you for the next one. And thanks again, Sabine. Thank you, Rick. Say hi to Dan for me if you talk to him. I will. <laughs>